It's not my last ever. It's my last for a few months. And uh, we'll be back. And, but this one being the last one, I wanted to make it count. And I prayed, and I was asking the Lord, what is it that I should share on? I, you know, I felt like, oh, man, maybe just a, a you know, big revival message. We'll just, you know, just lay hands on everybody and just have a wild Sunday morning. Or maybe, you know, call everybody to the prayer room, make them all sign on the dotted line, just get 100% participation. Or evangelism, we'll just get everybody saved all over again. And as I was praying, I felt really led by the Lord that uh, today's message was to be on racial reconciliation. And it is something I want to just put a real stamp on right now um, as I'm getting ready to transition to a season of rest. But I want to make some cultural statements into our spiritual family as to the way we think, the way our leadership team thinks, and the way we live as it relates to uh, cultural unity and racial reconciliation. And so uh, that's what we're going to get into this morning. And I, and I trust that the Lord is going to really um, clarify for some, really um, re-envision some, and really firm up for some his desire for oneness in the gospel, his desire for cultural unity. So uh, let's have a word of prayer and we'll get into it. So Lord, we love you. We thank you for your word. We thank you for the gospel. And as it is our desire to see the gospel go from the neighborhoods all over and around Gate City and all through Atlanta to the nations, to the hardest and darkest parts of the earth, I thank you, Lord, that you have given us a wonderful value and a lifestyle of not just one culture, but a melting pot of every tribe, tongue, people, and nation bringing their weight, bringing their value, and seeing to it that the vision that you've placed before us, that it can be accomplished together as one, as one new man in Christ. And so, Lord, I pray, even this morning, unlock truth, unlock clarity in our minds, release the spirit of revelation that we would see the gospel and understand it in a fresh and real way. And I ask you, Lord, let me speak as an oracle today. Would you hold my hand? I need you. Anoint this atmosphere. Anoint every ear. Open our hearts to receive your word. We give you thanks for it. In Jesus' name, everybody said amen. Okay, I have way more to say than I have time to say it. All right, I was, as I was putting together these notes, I was like, dude, I could, I could talk for hours on this topic. You know, the Lord has been gracious and brought us through a journey as it relates to cultural reconciliation. He's given us assignments uh, that have called our whole city into prayer and into solemn assembly and into fasting, where we've literally networked at times with over 500 churches and done solemn assemblies together, thousands and thousands deep. You know, we did one race at Stone Mountain where we stood on top of the largest Confederate memorial and we declared that in the place where there's been racism, there will be reconciliation. 
And we declared where there's been historic strongholds, there's going to be breakthrough. And where the first cross was burned publicly in 1915, we lifted up the cross together. Every tribe, tongue, people, and nation, every denomination all across our city, we did that in this city. And the Lord has seen to it to give us a portion and an unfolding story where Atlanta, I believe, historically, though it's been a, a, a place where um, it's been a, a, a seat of civil rights, I believe that we're going to see Atlanta be a place of civil righteousness, like our friend Jonathan Tremaine Thomas talks about. And there's going to be a breakthrough in Atlanta. And when I look at Atlanta and I think about how things sort of manifest in the natural and their little signposts, I just don't think it was any, I don't think it was any accident that the soccer team that we got showed up here and it was called what? United. And then they won. Glory to God. And so, you know, because we don't get sports championships in Atlanta. But we got Atlanta United. They got the breakthrough a little bit, right? And then what just happened like last week? The Braves won the World Series. The only thing that could possibly be left is the, the dogs are going to win a natty. I mean, we're on a roll here. But United won. And now being brave won. And in a minute, the dogs are going to win. I don't know what the prophetic is on that. But I just think... There's something happening in Atlanta that we've never seen before. And I think that we see little emblems and little signs the Lord gives at times, but we're in a very divine moment. We're in a very divine moment. And the Lord gave me a vision in 2003, and he showed me an R and an R. And he said, racism and religion are the two chief strongholds over the city of Atlanta. They need to be torn down so the spirit of death can be destroyed over the city and revival can break forth over the city of Atlanta. And we realized that God was calling us to replace racism and religion with reconciliation and revival. And so I think this is a moment to again lift that banner high that Jesus has a plan for our city. He has a plan that includes, yes, reconciling all the cultures together by the cross, by the power of his blood, but not just, just stopping with a reconciliation message, but seeing the kingdom bring an onslaught in Atlanta where everything shifts, where the power bases change, and we see a massive harvest of souls in this city. I believe this is our future. Could you say amen? And so I want to talk about this. I want to talk about how reconciliation is native and foundational to the gospel. Reconciliation, cultural reconciliation, racial reconciliation, that is not a social program. That is not a political platform. It is a gospel issue. And if we see it as anything else, we'll actually be diverted by all the voices that are in the air, in society, in the media, and social media. Reconciliation is a gospel issue. And so if you have the notes, I want to walk through the notes, and I want to make some really strong statements as I was sharing the notes with some of our leaders. They said, oh, going out with a bang, I see. And I am. I'm just going to go ahead and 
drop some bombs and drop the mic and I'll see you guys in nine months. Bless you. But we're going to talk about the gospel. We're going to talk about something called the Imago Dei, the image of God. We're going to talk about how Satan rebelled against God's plan and God's story. And then we're going to talk about God's rescue. And then we're going to talk about how God uses us to heal. And this is our path. This is our journey. Amen. So the gospel, I love it. I love that we're taking eight weeks or whatever we are to talk about the gospel. The gospel, ready? It begins with God. The gospel doesn't begin with us. The gospel begins with God. The gospel is God's story. It's his story. It's not ours. If we fall into the trap that the Israelites fell into, what we'll tend to do is we'll make a God in our own image, and then we'll make a story after our own desires. But when we start with the gospel, and the gospel is firstly God, it's about God, and it's God's story, then all of a sudden now we have a story that's after his plan, his will, and his desires. So for us to rightly understand the gospel, we've got to understand that it starts with God. It's his story, and we get to connect and become a part of his story. He who is infinite, he who is from everlasting to everlasting, there's a, a theological term that describes him better than any other, and it's that he's transcendent. That word means he's completely other than. There's nothing like him. Just, just catch it. Just, just catch this. There's one who's uncreated. And everything else that exists has been created. You know, when we think about the spectrum of everything there is, we might think, well, God is on this end and he's grand. He's great. He's above everything, before everything, gr greater than everything. And then the spectrum just completely goes all the way down, you know, archangels and then humans and then animals and down to like single-celled or organisms. But I would tell you, if you think of creation in that manner, you're actually not understanding the truth of who God is because he does not exist on a spectrum with everything else that's been created. See, there's God... There's an infinite gap, and then there's everything else. He's completely other than. He's completely unlike us. There'll never be another one like him. He's before everything. He's from everlasting to everlasting, and praise God that he's good. He's good, and he's kind, and he's compassionate. And the gospel is his story. It's how God, who is love, how he offered love to ones that don't deserve it and couldn't earn it, and he secured it in and of himself. Amen. It's beautiful. If you don't know that the story is a love story, you don't know the story. It's a love story because he's love. And here is what is shocking in this whole thing. God, who is completely other than, he walks through the creation and he comes to this most stunning moment where he says, let us 
the Trinity. Let us make man in our image. And when you weed through that, that original story, you see uh, all these animals form, all the fish form, the birds, all these things formed, and, and each one reproduces after its own kind. And then God, he begins, he, and, he, and he gets into the dust of the ground, and he breathes himself into us. Everything else reproduces after its own kind. We come from the image of him. I mean, can you catch the weight of that? Every human being created in the image and likeness of God. Genesis 1, 26 and 27. I mean, let us make man in our image and likeness. Male and female, he created them in the image and likeness of God. I mean, you are made after the original one, you are made after him. He who is transcendent created us in his image and likeness. That idea in the image and likeness of God is something called the imago Dei, the image of God. Imago image Dei, God, the image of God. You and I are a reflection of him. Every person you've ever met is a reflection of him. Every individual you've ever come in contact with is a reflection of him. That person you love the most, a reflection of him. That person that tap dances on your last nerve all the time, a reflection of him. In your victories, you're a reflection of him. In your failures, you're still a reflection of him. This is the Imago Dei. What, what a wonder. And so when I think about what God did in creation, what he put in us, the dignity that he esteemed us with, it is, I mean, it is wondrous beyond comprehension and I think about how he did this across every tribe, tongue, people, and nation, across every culture, through the generations. And I like to think of it this way, because God is infinite, to just get started in painting his image across humankind, he needed about seven billion people as his canvas. He needed every last culture and tribe and tongue to express who he is. And when you look at the beautiful mosaic of humanity, you look at that giant tapestry of all the cultures, all the, the languages, all the, the, every people group in the earth, when you get them all together, now we get a little bit of the flavor of God. Come on. That's the wonder of his story, our myriad expression in humanity, it's that we're carrying his image. It, the term we like to use is image bearers. You're an image bearer. You bear the image of the transcendent one. 
Well, see, if we can get our minds around that, that God put his thumbprint on all of us, it forms the foundation for us to understand what God was doing in the gospel. It forms the foundation for what he's doing in reconciliation and cultural unity and how we are all called to love and serve across every tribe, tongue, people, and nation and be united by the power of God. And so I want to make some strong statements. And when I got to typing, I just really liked how it came out. And so I almost never read my notes, but I want to I speak into the atmosphere. I want to speak to principalities and powers that hate what I'm about to say. I want to speak into your heart's truth that will enable us to become who God's dreamed that we would be. You know, when Paul said, we cast down imaginations and every high thing that exalts itself above the knowledge of God... The chief way he said that he was doing that was by proclaiming the truth. When we declare truth, it dispels lies. When we release the, the, the knowledge of God, it, it, it places a judgment against the Antichrist spirit. When we lift up Jesus Christ, the Antichrist spirit is judged. You don't have to go railing against principalities and powers. No, turn on light and darkness goes. So, being created in his image and likeness means that every person has incredible value and worth. Every person. Every person has a beautiful portion to offer. Every person gets to be themselves. And in the church, when we're together, everyone gets to bring their portion and everybody gets to bring their full self. And the sum of who we are together is God's dream for his people. The sum of who we are together. Ready? God is not looking for a dominant culture. He's not looking for a dominant human culture that all the other cultures ascribe to. He's not looking for unity through uniformity. That everybody would just be pressed into one cultural expression. He wants unity in diversity. Conformity to one human culture over another is not unity. The only conformity condoned in the kingdom is conformity to Christ. His kingdom and his culture are our standard. The fact that we are new creatures partly means that we have received a new culture, the culture of Christ. Kingdom values and kingdom culture always outweigh our natural culture and experience. Come on. That doesn't mean that we're cultureless people. It doesn't mean 
that we don't have our distinctions. No, God's not looking for, you know, this idea of we're just colorblind or, or we're just culturally blind. No, no, he's looking for all the spices. Come on. He likes it. All the different cultures, all the different nationalities, all the different expressions. He likes that all together. Because in it, he sees himself. Well, while I'm feeling like I want a medal, there's no such thing as a one culture church. Now, I understand in different parts of different nations, you're going to only have one culture. I get that. I'm not shading uh, you know, a place that is representative of where they are and it's one culture and that's what it is. I, I'm not shading that. But in the kingdom of God, listen, there is not a white church or a black church or a Latino church or an Asian church. That's not in the kingdom of God. What's in the kingdom of God is every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. That's it. And I want to say it this way. We have a critical need for one another in our manifold uniqueness. We need one another. I can't bring what my black, Latino, and Asian brothers and sisters can bring. I can only bring what I can bring from my culture. We have to have one another so that we can be complete, so that we can be whole, so that we can be full and, and, a, and a full expression of him. Amen. How are your toes? Good. Maybe you should get your boots on now then. If a person feels like they cannot be themselves in our environment, we may not be espousing oneness and unity, but rather uniformity and conformity. Assimilation isn't reconciliation. We at Gate City are to be a trumpet calling for unity and diversity. Heaven celebrates our distinctions, and so diversity must be celebrated in our assemblies. Unity in diversity must be how we live. We don't assimilate to one culture over another. We all bring our full self together, and in that expression, therein is the Imago Dei, and therein is the kingdom of God. Amen. That's who we get to be. And we get to live this out in a city that has a sordid past in racism and a historical uh, portion in, in civil rights. But we get to be a kingdom expression at an hour when the earth needs to see it the most. And the way that we get to walk this out is in love and relationship. I've been working on this idea about developing 
tabernacles. Churches that are tabernacles. Churches that are based on the presence of God at the center. Here we have 24-hour live worship and prayer. We, we fancy ourselves a tabernacle church where the presence of God is preeminent. The, the word of God is, is, our, is our infallible guide. And Jesus, the person of Jesus is at the center. We practice that through 24-hour live worship and prayer that takes place right here. And it should transcend in every part of our life. This is what it means to be a tabernacle. And I would say that this, this idea of worship and prayer, that in itself, that's like an altar, burning incense. But a tabernacle is not complete if all it has is an altar. It needs a table. And a table is where we come together. It's where we fellowship and share together. It's where we open our hearts to one another. A table is where we connect. It's where we love. It's where we understand. It's where we meet. I love what Dustin shared a few weeks ago about a culture of invitation, and he was talking about how we invite people to our family table. That's who we are, and here's what I've come to realize. I've been talking to leaders around the nation in 2020, the, 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 the racial tensions and challenges of 2020, it hit the church hard. And, and even leaders that I know that have diverse congregations, when, when all that pain and all that trial was, was rippling through the nation, so many of those leaders found that, man, their churches, they were actually... There were, there were actually multiple cultures, but they weren't united. They were just in the same space together. I had one leader, he told me, he goes, I've got to go back and literally teach a biblical worldview from the beginning just so that I can get my congregation back together. But you know what I realized was that even in our merged environment and going back in the house of prayer, for the last five years, we have been talking about and living out cultural unity and oneness. We have actually been doing the table with one another. I don't even know how many, how many conversations I've had. I mean, countless, dozens and dozens and dozens and dozens just on the issue of cultural unity, just on the issue of race, where people have opened their heart to me from other cultures and other experiences and shared with me difficult things that you don't usually share across culture. And so many of our leaders and so many in our spiritual family have had those same conversations. And what I realize is this, because we emphasized a table with one another, when trials hit, we found each other back at the table instead of just going and making our own table, instead of just separating and, and saying, well, they, they wouldn't understand me anyway. Let me just come on over here. No, we, we came back to the table. And here's what I realized. Racial tensions, they're not going away. They're going to continue to heighten. Matthew 24 makes it really clear. 
Ethnos will rise against ethnos. The American cultural solution is not gonna be found in a political party. It's not gonna be found in a social program. It can only be found, the answer can only be found in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And the gospel of Jesus compels us to the table across cultures so we can find one another, so we can hear one another, so we can love and understand one another, and so we can fight for one another. I was talking to one of our staff this week and a couple of our staff this week, both African-American women, and they were talking about how we have to develop safe spaces to be able to process cultural difficulty. And the idea came up that, you know, you got to be able to, to come back into your own place with just your own culture to be able to say things unfiltered. And I said, I totally understand that. And I, and I see how that can be healthy, especially if there's been a lot of pain and challenge and difficulties in, in cross-cultural relationships and a lot of misunderstanding. It's exhausting. I get that. I said, but you know what I think would be an amazing dream? Is if the safe space ended up being all of us together. Ended up being the table together. Where we listen, we empathize, we hear, and we love, and we act across cultures, and we fight for one another, and we do it together. Guys, we need to live this table thing out. We need to live out what it means to share and connect and fellowship with one another across the things that, that would naturally divide us. Amen. So it's God's story. We have the image of God. That means everybody has weight and value and gets to bring their whole self. And I was thinking about the obstacles, the challenges. And when you think about the challenges to to unity, to oneness that Jesus dreamed of and prayed for, immediately I go back to, to Satan and his rebellion against God. And I was thinking this week, and it was dawning on me as I was praying and just sort of preparing that what we see in Satan's original rebellion against God, what we see there, it forms the foundational root system of all racism. So just follow with me. Isaiah 14, the prophet says, how you are fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning, how you are cut down to the ground, you who weaken the nations, for you said in your heart, I will ascend into heaven, I will exalt my throne above the stars of God, I will also sit on the mountain of the congregation, on the farthest sides of the north, I will ascend above the heights of the clouds, I will be like the most high. We, we always say that Satan's original sin, his foundational seminal sin was pride. And, and we have admonitions in the New Testament that even in growing in the kingdom, that even in leadership, you don't let someone in there who's just a novice because they could fall into that same trap of arrogance and pride. And it dawned on me this week that when, when Lucifer shows up in the garden... And he begins his first moments of temptation with Adam and Eve. Remember, he tries to exalt himself above all the angelic ranks and become just like God. He's trying to become supreme. 
And when he shows up to Eve, he says to her, hey, hey, did God tell you not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Here's the thing. He knows that when you eat that, you're going to be just like him. He tempts Eve with the exact same lust that was in his own heart to be exalted, to be supreme, to be above everyone else. A created being, and he's trying to be just like the creator. He's trying to jump that infinite gap. And it hit me. Supremacy, it doesn't just show up in hate groups culturally. Supremacy is where we look at others, individuals, or groups, and we think, I'm greater than they are. Economically, culturally, across gender. There's only two genders, by the way. Just I'm going to say it. I have to say it. But as soon as you think in your heart, I'm better than them, you have entered into that very first space of sin, that Luciferian pride. You've entered into a supremacist attitude. How them toes. Supremacy doesn't just show up in a hate group. Supremacy shows up in the mind where you think yourself better than someone else. Supremacy is about not recognizing the Imago Dei. Supremacy could show up in any culture. It could show up in, in male or female. It could show up in all sorts of ways. In fact, it does. And when we step into supremacy and say, well, I, my group, is better than that group because A, B, C, and D, we have now bought hook, line, and sinker, the original Luciferian sin. What's interesting is Lucifer tempts Eve with, come on, you'll be just like God. But when Jesus shows up on the scene, Philippians 2, though he existed in the form of God, made himself of no reputation and took the form of a servant and humbled himself even to death, even to the death of a cross. And Paul told the Philippians, and he tells us today, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Prefer one another, what? Above yourself. Satan says, exalt yourself above another. Jesus says, no, prefer them above you. It's the exact opposite spirit. Which brings me to this, that racism is the Antichrist spirit. Because God, God is undefeatable. Lucifer realized God's undefeatable. And what, and you know, we have these images and these like Bible cartoons or something like war broke out in heaven. I remember Carmen back in the day, the older group will know who I'm talking about. That had song, The Champion. There's a big, long fight, and, you know, they're busting each other up. And Yeah, there was no fight. When Lucifer, when that milli, 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 milli moment 
of rebellion hit his mind, when darkness hit the mind of Lucifer, he instantly was expelled from the presence of beauty and light and glory and perfection. There was no fight. And, and, and we imagine there's this, this big cosmic struggle that took place. That's not how it went. And so because Lucifer realized that God's completely undefeatable, what he does is he goes and attacks the image. Remember when you were a little kid and maybe you got mad at your friend and you went and found the thing your friend had given you? You're like, and you do the, you know, you do the mean thing to the picture or the toy that was your friend's and then you make up and they're like, hey, you still got my teddy bear? You're like, lost it. What did you do? You tried to destroy the image of your friend. Well, Lucifer, because he realized God's undefeatable, he goes after the image, and he hates the image of God. He hates that you and I remind him of God. He hates the image of God in all of our myriad expressions. He hates the image of God in all of our cultural distinctions, in all of our manifold skin tones. Hatred for the image of God across all the hues of human expression is racism. And it's fully the Antichrist spirit. Am I making any sense? So when we get trapped into that, when we get led into that, we have actually bought into that original Luciferian sin. That's not our portion, beloved. Come on, that's not our portion. And here's the beauty of it all. Even though Adam and Eve took the bait, the cross of Jesus Christ, the power of his blood has completely canceled the power of sin in us, completely delivered us from the power of sin, completely set us free from the power of sin, cleansed us and justified us, declared us innocent. And now we have the power by the blood of Jesus Christ to not operate in that satanic sin of pride and supremacy, but to operate in what Paul called us to, loving and preferring one another above ourselves. And therein, that is the gospel, that we would lay ourselves down for one another, just like Jesus laid himself down for us, which is really the whole rescue mission of the gospel, that God, who is completely other than, has spent all of his resources, which are infinite, but he spent himself to rescue us who are completely other than him. And therein we find our commission in the gospel. It's to love the one who is other than us. It's to lay ourselves down for the one who is other than us. The lost, yes, but across cultures, across the generations, male and female, across, across the socioeconomic gap, that we would lay ourselves down for the other. It's, it's the most simple, central expression of the love of God in the gospel. And with that, I just want to bring us this last thought. 
There is a dynamic power in the cross in reconciliation. And it's so, it's so um, prominent in the New Testament that Paul, he literally emphasizes it in the um, epistles over and over and over and over. And it's the reconciliation that we have with God and the reconciliation that we have with one another. But what has captivated me is in Ephesians chapter 2, the way Paul represents the reconciliation. And I just want to look at this passage, point out one thing, and then give us a quick commission, and I'll be done. Ephesians 2, verse 11. He says, Therefore, remember that you, once Gentiles in the flesh, who were called uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision made in the flesh by hands, that at that time you were without Christ. This is a conversation between Jews and Gentiles. The Jews being the circumcision, the Gentiles being the uncircumcision. You were without Christ, you Gentiles. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once afar off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Watch this. For he himself is our peace, who has made both one and has broken down the middle wall of separation, having abolished in his flesh the enmity so as to create in himself one new man from the two, thus making peace, that he might reconcile them both to God in one body through the cross, thereby putting to death the enmity. This always makes me wonder. It's such a beautiful, Ephesians 2, what a beautiful, powerful chapter that explains the, the work of the cross and what it's done for us. I mean, it's, it's just fantastic at the highest level. But when Paul breaks it down, look at the order that he broke it down in. He says that in the cross, the wall between cultures has been destroyed and that we have become one, that in one body, that across cultures, that we together would then be reconciled to God. It's shocking to me that Paul emphasizes first our reconciliation horizontally and then the emphasis on the, requisition, uh, the reconciliation vertically to God. Here's my point. Reconciliation across cultures isn't a social program. It's not a political platform. I know the news channels want to politicize it and use it for clicks and stir up anger and hate. I know that's all out there. That is not legit. Here's the point. The original reconciler, the original rescuer is Jesus Christ. He came on a search and rescue mission. He shed his blood on the cross for you and me. And in the reconciliation, yes, the boundary between us and God was destroyed. But here's the point. The boundary between us and one another has been destroyed. And this is what he calls us to, is oneness and the gospel. And here's what I want to tell you, that you have brothers and sisters of other cultures that you are one with right now. And it's up to us to come around the table, to express our oneness, to open our hearts, to get open and vulnerable and share and understand and listen and cry and care. 
and love. Love the other just like Jesus loved us. This is the last thought. I've been thinking about friendship a lot lately and the value of friendship and thinking about healing in friendship and in the gospel. And, and this is a big point. I'm just struck with this idea. We know that God is the one who heals. We know he's the one that saves and delivers. But God, healing comes from God, but 99.999% of the time, it comes through someone else. And I, I look at that and I go, wow. He uses us to heal one another. He uses us to love one another and meet one another. And you know what I found? is wherever your wound is and whoever was the one that inflicted your wound, God will use one just like that one to actually heal your wound. If you've got a father wound, God will use a father to heal that wound. If you've got a mother, wow, that was prophetic. <laughs> if you've got a mother wound, he'll use a mother. Alicia, my assistant, She's African-American, beautiful, brilliant young woman. In our last three years, I mean, in the climate, we've had so many conversations. We were talking this week and she was just sharing with me about how much she loves us, our spiritual family. Not that the other spiritual families aren't amazing, but she's like, there's these movements and there's all these things happening. And you know, it's a little bit of a hot topic, like cultural reconciliation. She goes, but I'm like, have you seen us? She goes, because I found healing in the arms of people that were sa the same color as the people that hurt me. And beloved, that is our calling, that we would be Jesus with skin on, and that if there's wounds culturally, racially, that we would actually be willing to risk the pain and the difficulty to get in relationship to bring healing, to be the healing that God wants to release. And it would come through maybe even someone that looks like one that inflicted wounds in your life. This is the gospel. Jesus incarnation, he comes God in the flesh, he becomes one of us to meet us, to love us and to heal us. And we are called into the same gap. That God would use us as healing agents for a world that so badly needs it. Because beloved, there is no answer in the political sphere. There is no answer 
to racism in the political sphere. There is no answer in a social program. The only answer comes through the power of the blood of Jesus Christ and a people who have, they have laid themselves down so that they can love across culture, across socioeconomic gaps, that they'll risk even being misunderstood and risk the places of pain to come together around a table and love and serve and give and humble themselves and do it again and again and again and again until we're healed, until we have healing in our midst. Come on, can you say amen? This is how we walk out what we pray. We can crack principalities through intercession, but we heal hearts life on life, love, care, and connection. Beloved, this is our calling, to do it across cultures. And you know what? Other places, if they want to be monochromatic, God bless them. And maybe it's easier. Maybe they don't have to have the same conversations we have to have. That's not our calling. Our calling is to represent the Imago Dei. Our calling is to, to love in ways that people just look, y'all are wild. Our calling is manifold and variegated, where everybody gets to come and bring their weight, bring their, their gift, bring their cultural distinctives, and we all come together under the cross, and we love and live this way. Come on, can you say amen? Let's stand. One week you come in and it's gospel. The next week you come in, the lead pastor is speaking Spanish. Oh, glory. Come on. I don't know what's coming next week, but I like all the spices. Let's keep it rolling. Let's keep it going. Let's allow Jesus to give us his image and nature. Lord, here we are. We know you want us to take the gospel throughout the city. We know you want us to raise up five tabernacles of 24-7 worship and prayer, but we won't do it without our brothers and sisters from other cultures. We won't do it. We won't go up without each other. Black, white, Asian, Hispanic, we want the whole Imago day. We want the whole thing, Jesus. So Lord, even right now, where we have in any way given ourselves to supremacy, we repent in Jesus' name. Cleanse us. We humble ourselves. Bring us to a place of beauty and healing in one another's arms. God, let us see that we have to go together. We can't go alone. We have to go together. So come, Holy Spirit, I ask, broaden our vision for cultural reconciliation. Broaden the number of nations, nationalities, cultures that you bring into our spiritual family. Broaden it all over the city of Atlanta. And Lord, where racism has been a thing, 
where civil rights has been a thing, I pray. Raise up civil righteousness in a city. Tear down racism and dead religion. Release reconciliation and revival. I ask you for that in the city of Atlanta. And I believe you for that in Gate City. God, do it deeply in our hearts, we ask in Jesus' name. Pastors uh, in the glass lounge. Some of our leaders and pastors have God bless you.